important or even relevant, but the journalist cannot be sure until he has examined it. He must continually turn aside from his typewriter and reach for his bookshelves. Of course, Northern Ireland is a theatre of action where the past plays an unusually vivid role, but all events, however novel, have a history. Every problem is a legacy. Why, in the 1980s, are the continuing and acrimonious arguments over comprehensive schools? To understand, we must go back not merely to 1944, but to the roots of modern English education in the early 19th century, and to an examination of the systems which preceded it. Why is it so difficult to modernize and civilize British trade unions? It is pointless to ask the question unless we are prepared to travel backwards into the history of British trade unionism, and indeed examine the origins of the present industrial structure. Why are strikes so frequent in British industry? Part of the explanation lies in arrangements made in the two decades before 1914, themselves conditioned by attitudes shaped in the very earliest phase of the Industrial Revolution. Moreover, the journalist finds himself conjuring up the past not merely to provide answers to particular contemporary questions, but to explain their relationship to each other. The historical structure of our manufacturing industry has a direct bearing on the development of unions, and both are influenced by the evolution of the educational system. So the journalist plunges deeper and deeper into history, and on an ever-broadening front. Sooner or later he is tempted to write history himself, to satisfy his own legitimate and professional curiosity. Therein lies the origin of this book. During the years 1965-70, to as editor of a political journal, I had the duty, week by week, to comment upon, to try to understand myself and explain to others, the struggles and failures of one of the most tragically unsuccessful governments in English history. I was conscious all the time that the failures lay not merely in the limitations of the men and women who composed the government, but in the nation as a whole, in its institutions and the attitudes which shaped them. During the 1960s, this country underwent a profound and agonizing experience— from year to year, almost from week to week, it shrank in its own estimation and in that of the world. The empire was gone almost before the decade commenced, but during it the loss was first felt, and the Commonwealth designed to replace it revealed as a paper sham. The decline of Britain as a world power, slow and almost imperceptible in the 1940s and 1950s, began to accelerate with unmistakable speed and palpable results. This was accompanied by a growing awareness that the country was falling behind, not merely in physical strength, but in material prosperity. There was, too, no indication whatsoever that the declension could be arrested, let alone reversed. We faced a future not just of comparative weakness, but of relative poverty, and a future in which these characteristics would become more pronounced with every year that passed. Britain had entered the age of humiliations." The failure of a government simply epitomized and reflected the diminution of a people. Was this process natural, indeed inevitable? Was it even desirable? What precisely did we mean by failure? The loss of imperial and world status might prove an advantage, a slow growth rate a blessing. Power and wealth have never borne much relation to human happiness. On the eve of the 21st century, the English could hardly be described as a suffering or an abject nation, nor even by their own standards a particularly discontented one. They enjoyed more freedom than ever before, not merely individual liberties, which had been greatly enlarged in the past decade, 
but the collective freedom from onerous responsibilities in the world. They enjoyed, too, a degree of civil peace and internal stability without precedent in their history, and without parallel abroad. They might take such things for granted. To most of the world, these seemed enviable and elusive privileges. Was there not perhaps a certain logic in this national balance sheet, the loss of power compensated by a real gain in security? If Britain was still running a world empire, operating as a great power and throbbing with the rapid economic growth needed to sustain such efforts, could it possibly be an untroubled, law-abiding and stable country, let alone an agreeable one in which to live? These questions naturally provoked others. What sort of people did the English wish to be, and what kind of country did they prefer to inhabit? Clearly, one could not begin to answer these without discovering how far the evolution of Britain, the type of country it was, and the position it had occupied in the world, was a matter of conscious.